all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. I am so happy to be back at the podcast today. I must say that there's a joy that literally rises up in me when I get to sit down and give time and space to prepare for this. And I want to say a very special thank you to all of you who have become partners with us on Patreon. Some of you have even pledged over the monthly dollar amount, and it literally has left us speechless. I mean that. Thank you so much. You truly have no idea what it means to us to feel like people are getting behind this and helping us to make it possible to keep it going. This week on Patreon, if you are a patron, you can look for journal prompts for this episode. Those are for you to take these themes and truths that God is speaking over you and to kind of sit with them longer and really do a heart work with God in those areas. And you can also look for an extra sneak peek of a song that I'll tell you about a little bit later in the podcast. And then at least one extra podcast I know is going to be thrown in for the month of October for our patrons. So we're looking forward to getting to share that with you. Thank you so much again. But it really is life-giving to the core when I get to do this and to prepare and invite Jesus into it, really. It's one of the ways that I truly know that this is right where I'm supposed to be is because I really do feel a joy that bubbles up from it. And I consider that what I call life-giving. I love the challenge of just finding truth for the mundane and letting the Holy Spirit come and do what only He can do. Plus, I at least know that the times that we can make much of the Word of God together— I have confidence, and at least that, that that part of this podcast will produce fruit and that it will not return void, and so that comforts me a great deal, especially when I finish a podcast and I'm just like, okay, this is the one where everyone's going to find out that I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But I love how my friend Lauren reminds me all the time that I get to co-author with Jesus today and all that I'm doing, and He invites us into His work and we get to invite him into ours. And I hope this podcast does find you well today and that you're having a glorious day. And not to be cheesy, I do hope whatever you put your hands and your heart to today that you'll remember that you do get to co-author with Jesus as well, inviting him into even the smallest of things today because he really does care about every detail. Even for some of you who might be in the midst of maybe something uncertain or even what feels like an upheaval in your life, I pray that God is using even that to bring you to a place of needing to get still and listen and watch for Him to show up like only He can. And I hope this podcast today brings remembrance of some things that need to be remembered and that He uses it to reorient your heart around what He's stirring in you. Well, it's been a crazy few weeks for sure, just watching these unprecedented hurricanes that have raged into places that we've never even imagined. And as we still get warnings of even more hurricanes brewing, and I heard about earthquakes even happening, it's just one of those things where I'm like, is hurricane season always this bad, or is it because it just hit closer to home and I'm more aware of it? Or is it really that it's more severe than it's ever been? It's crazy to think that Hurricane Irma was felt as far as Alpharetta, Georgia, where we used to live, where my brother and sister-in-law live. As I've shared with you, Eric and Kristen have been busy collecting money and supplies for Houston, Texas for Hurricane Harvey. And the update on that is that over $50,000 was raised. Actually, probably Kristen said this weekend, $60,000. And of course, I shared that Kristen went there for about a week and helped her parents with their own flooding mess that they're having to deal with. And then Kristen and Eric sort of switched places, and Kristen came back home with their girls, and Eric drove the truck full of supplies. So if you gave to that, that stuff made it there in an amazing way. And he drove it into several different neighborhoods and to families who were in the most desperate need of help that they knew about from friends who were on the ground there already in the Houston area. And they've also been planning because there's still money left over to continue sending in help for several weeks, which is just beautiful. And there are places Kristen was telling me about, like Rockport, Texas, where the hurricane actually made landfall that have basically shut their schools down, like for the rest of the year. They've just basically said, we can no longer provide school, so you'll just need to figure out another way to do schooling for your kids. 
Can you imagine? So there's plenty to be done for the long haul. So while Eric was there in Houston delivering things like survival kits and fans and dehumidifiers and bleach, Hurricane Irma hit Florida and made its way all the way to their home in Alpharetta, of course, a tropical storm at that point, but it still knocked out their power for several days. It just kind of leaves me a little bit stunned in my brain. And the times that I've talked to Kristen, she's just like, well, it's still pretty much been like hurricane here all day long, hurricane every day. And between her staying in touch with the needs in Houston, where all the supplies were going, and then, of course, staying in touch with her own parents and all that they were going through, and then her having no power during all of that is just mind-boggling. She was telling me about these tips around knowing when you're going to lose power, and it's pretty ingenious, the system that she had going. So she told me that if you know you're going to lose power, you should fill up your freezer with as many Ziploc bags and plastic bottles of water that you can, along with anything that you don't want to lose in your freezer, like expensive meat and things of that nature. So she said to ensure that your freezer stays in a safe zone, to put a cup of water in the freezer with no lid on it and let it freeze, and then set a coin on top of the frozen water. And so even if you have to leave, you'll know when you come back, if the coin has like sunk down, you know that the water melted inside the freezer while you were gone and the food left in there is not safe for consumption. Kristen did all of these fancy tricks because she's got ingenuity at her core. And so she said it actually worked. Her coin stayed on the top of the cup so she knew that everything was safe. And she also said that when some of those Ziploc bags and the bottles freeze, that you should like open up your fridge really fast and stuff a bunch of that in your fridge and then shut the door. And then she put like a do not open sign on the fridge door so that you keep it like really cool in there. And she said with all that frozen Ziploc bag stuff in there, after 48 hours, she said everything was still super cold in her fridge. I thought that was brilliant. And I mean, you never know when you might need some good tips like that. Heaven forbid. (laughs) Remember when we talked about singing ahead of the storm? Well, um, we got to do that at church on the sunny morning before the storm was supposed to hit the Florida coast and even travel up the middle of the state was what we were hearing, of course. And at that point, we had all seen the horrible devastation of these small islands in the Caribbean and had been grieving for them already and praying hope and help for those dear people. So it was a privilege to get to join in worship and prayer for more people in Irma's path as one of our pastors got up right in the middle of our worship time while we were singing this song called God of Miracles. It's a song by Chris McClarney, who is our worship leader, that says, God of miracles come, we need your supernatural love to break through. Nothing's impossible. You're the God of miracles. So as we sung that, this pastor led us as a church to both sing and pray with belief that God would have mercy on the people of Florida and everyone in the path of the storm. And I couldn't help but think of a few weeks ago talking about this very thing, singing out in front of the storm and praising the God who saves and asking Him to show mercy. Like we talked about Jehoshaphat sending out the singers ahead of the battle. Worship can actually be a weapon. Like 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I was talking to my mom about having them find somehow a home movie of me that I was talking about singing His Banner Over Me is Love. If you remember, I told you that it was the first worship song that I remember singing and loving, and it was my favorite, and how it led to me putting that song as the first song after the overture on the Lullaby record as a way to kind of sing from this place that I've been sung over my whole life. So my mom called me to tell me that they had found the video. And for some reason, I remember something about it just being kind of just funny. It was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be when I finally saw it, but I couldn't quite remember exactly what it was like. I thought maybe I was just wearing a diaper because I really was like three years old. But my mom just started laughing when she called me and I was like, what? Did I not have clothes on? She was like, yeah, you had clothes on. But through her laughter, she said, but you do have a toy rifle strapped to you. (laughs) 
And we were both just crying, laughing on the phone. I said, well, Mom, it's pretty fitting since worship is a weapon. And she said, that's right. And we just died laughing. (laughs) So she sent it, my dad, in this form that I could actually open it. And I just like almost burst into tears. It was so cute. It was, like I said, so much shorter than I remembered. And I wish that it was so much longer. But there I was doing the motions. You can't hear me, but I have this rifle strapped to me. Anyway, I just pray that God is revealing those themes to you, like I've said, things that have been sung over you your whole life, and that you maybe just begun to write them down and savor His presence with you all this time. And it could be even something as silly as a toy rifle around your neck when you were three, (laughs) reminding you of who He's made you to be. For me, it was a worshiper singing out in front of the storms. It's amazing to me how God will expose a good work in us, even through the storms of our lives. I'm sure you've noticed, like me, many people who are just leaning into each other in this time and serving each other, and that it has brought harmony and unity as well in places we never imagined. So storms, whether they are literal or metaphorical, can do a deep and good work in us and through us. And like John Piper said about his own cancer years ago, Don't waste your cancer. In other words, take every opportunity to let God do in you everything He wants to accomplish, even in suffering and even in the unknown. So it's like, let's not waste our storms. One pretty amazing work that God did in our own lives through the literal storms was we have a pretty special young lady in our life. She's in high school, and I want to protect her name and her identity as to not exploit her in any way. She's not one of our own children, but she's in our lives. And we as a family got to see God start calling her heart to Himself because this young lady was not raised in a Christian home, and she had not yet been born again. But we started to see this intrigue of who God is to start really spark in her eyes and in her questions. And can I just say what God did in my own heart through this realization all over again, that there are people everywhere who literally do not know the gospel. She looked at me like I was kind of crazy when I told her that Jesus was coming back. I'm telling you that when I began to explain the gospel, we started in the Garden of Eden and we ended with Jesus's return and she didn't have any idea. So God has, first of all, just awakened my heart that He is a saving God. And then we've got to not be afraid to tell people that He's a saving God. The first day that I finally just walked her through the gospel, I also walked her through what it might look like for her to pray a prayer of asking Jesus to come into her heart. And I could tell she needed some time to process, so we kind of just left it at that, and I texted her the prayer. And then I just asked our kids to begin to pray for her specifically, Well, a few weeks passed until we were right between Hurricane Harvey, and Irma was at that point a Hurricane 5 out over the Atlantic. And she texted me pretty distraught about something she had found on Twitter that was going around, and it was this prediction of Jesus' return and how the eclipse lines up with this and that in Scripture, and then how hurricanes lined up with something else. And it was yet another attempt for man to somehow know the times and seasons, because we want to know, right? And I began to explain to her that we can't possibly know the future or what is ahead for us specifically or what storms may or may not be coming our way, but there is a way to have peace through it. And as I was texting her, the Lord dropped the word repentance in my heart. And I just went in with her over text into repentance that if she was ready, she could have peace in the midst of this crazy world. But first I reminded her, about repentance again, truly turning from the old, the dead way of living, and walking into new life. And I made sure and made the distinction that it wasn't that she was a bad person. It was actually that she was literally a dead person without Christ. And surprisingly, she texted me back and she said, I agree with that. And I left it up to her, but shared with her that repentance was the crucial part turning from the old way of living, like I said, and choosing newness of life in Christ. Well, she prayed on her own that night, and the next day, there was all the evidence of a new creation, and it was like a thousand bricks had lifted off of her heart. 
I love how God used the urgency of the times and the storms and the uncertainty of this world that is so quickly fading to bring this precious young lady to a place of eternal peace with Jesus. I'm so thankful that my children got to see their prayers for her answered. It has been a faith-building time for them, for sure, this whole journey. So there's a good work that God can do in the storm. And speaking of more of those good works in the midst of storms, I have to be honest and tell you that since my last podcast, I've had a wonderful opportunity to come face-to-face with some things that I was believing And it honestly caught me pretty off guard. So in case you were wondering if I just, you know, live 100% from this belovedness thing 100% of the time, I don't. I'm still learning to walk the very things out that I share. And this is why it's called a relationship with Jesus, because we keep needing to go back, right? And to return and converse and receive and surrender. And true healing is like an onion that's being peeled layer after layer And we've got to be faithful to let God do this work in us, even if it takes returning many times over about the same wound. But I had the opportunity to hang with some women worship leaders online through this mentorship program I'm part of called Worship Circle. And I was asked specifically by a woman leader how she should handle feeling less than sometimes, specifically because she's a woman leader and how there just feels like this undercurrent sometimes of not truly knowing her place as a woman on staff and on stage at church. And because that's such a hard question and a hard subject, and because there are so many different stances on this subject across the board, normally I would have kind of just skirted around it, kind of ummed my way through and even around the question for some reason. But I just blurted out something like, I believe that the whole picture of who God is is revealed in both male and female leaders. And I believe that what men bring is so specific and powerful and needed and right and made in God's image. And in the same way, I believe that what women bring is so specific and beautiful and needed and right and made in God's image. I believe it's supposed to look like a marriage. And I know that a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but that's okay. I believe that men do have the responsibility and are biblically called to headship, just like Christ is the head of the church. But in that, there's this challenge for them, right, of servant-hearted leadership. Then I believe that women beautifully complement alongside of men. And just like in a marriage, we each have qualities and godlike traits that when we are really led by the Spirit of God, it can work together, right, as this beautiful picture Our challenge as women is to have this posture of the S word that nobody wants to talk about, submission. We wrestle with it so much. But the thing is, neither part can work without the other part doing their God-given, Spirit-led part. If there's not servant-hearted leadership, there's wounding on the other side of that. And if there's not a posture of submission, then there's wounding on the other side of that. The whole picture comes together when husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church. And when wives submit and yield to that loving leadership, there really is a joy that can come from it. I believe it's supposed to work like this in the church too, where men lead with love as Christ did. And when women respond like the radiant bride of Christ does in yikes, submission to that love. A coming together in a unity happens, though, and dare I say, a joy can rise up in it. And this is sort of a side note from what I told the women that day, but in my own marriage, I found that when I willingly wait for Nathan and I let him know that I'm looking to him for God to lead us through him, it only brings more freedom into my life. But here's the big key to this factor to submission— At least I've found this to be true for me. I've got to be looking to God to meet the God needs in me. I can't actually look to Nathan to fulfill me. Only God can fulfill me. There's an abyss, a God-shaped hole, if you will, that God himself carved out in us that can literally only be filled by him. This goes along with that theme of validation that I've talked about before, how only God can put his thumbprint on you and say, you're mine. Nathan can't even do that for me, even though he's one of the greatest loves of my life. And by that, I mean Jesus and my kids. I mean, Nathan is a love of my life, but he can't fulfill me. 
And when I finally learn that Nathan responds best to me when I'm not this basket case of needs coming to him every day for him to fill me up somehow, only to leave him feeling sucked dry of life, no, he responds to me best when I have been alone with God who made me, and I've made the daily exchange with God that He's both the instiller and the fulfiller of all my needs and my desires. And when I do that, I actually begin to see how this man I married is really simply a gift to me. He's a gift, which is literally what his name means. I am just supposed to enjoy him in this life. And when I'm in this personal rhythm of letting God meet the God needs, which are needs like validation, fulfillment, a sense of purpose, a need to be unconditionally loved, when I'm letting God and God alone meet those it frees Nathan to no end. And then when I approach him like that, there's this levity. And not to be a romantic, but it starts to feel more like a dance. It brings an ease. And honestly, when he senses me just backing off altogether of what's needed of him, and I just let him be and lead, here's what happens. He 100% of the time pulls me close. And when I approach him already filled up, he pulls me closer I feel like he's even more attracted to me when I'm filled up by God. All of a sudden, he doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't feel nagged at. He doesn't feel like the life's going to get sucked out of him if he pulls me near. No, what happens is he starts sharing the leading with me. He asks me what I think. He asks me how I feel about what we might be going through. He asks me what we should do. And suddenly, we're co-leading together. So it's like this catch-22, but in a positive light, where you can get locked in together in this really beautiful rhythm, but the conditions of that rhythm are dependent upon each person coming to the table with their God needs met, and we free each other to step into this order or this dance that God did create, whether we like it or not. He wouldn't have created it if it wasn't good. It's good, and it's made to work, and it's to be enjoyed And when we let God be who He is, fulfilling our deepest needs, we start to actually enjoy this order that He created, and it brings, oh my gosh, fulfillment. The order was never intended for one person made in God's image to trump the other, to diminish the other, to not trust the other. As we know, sin distorted the order, and there became consequences along with that sin that caused there to be tendencies in us to buck this order. But through the way of Jesus, He reconciled us to God and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and His work in us produces fruit. The fruit that comes restores the order. As we know, it's quite easy to get out of rhythm with each other. When one of the parts goes off on their own, even away from God sometimes meeting those needs in us, and maybe because of past hurt or a track record somewhere of someone not doing their part, we just kind of venture out into no man's land and we're too afraid to do this beautiful work together. Too prideful maybe to submit or to lead with love, or we even just lack the will to even start the dance over. Sometimes we just need to start back at the beginning of the dance But back to what I was saying to these women leaders, and oh my gosh, I know this is such an earful, so thank you for hanging with me on this. I told them that we as women have got to come to the table with a posture of humility and a readiness to just assume the best. We should always offer grace even when we are not offered the same, and we should take our requests and our concerns and our needs, our deepest needs, always to the God who made us in His image. And I could see all of them nodding yes, and even now I agree with everything I said, and I told them about the marriage picture and how I've seen breakthrough every single time when I've gone back to God and voiced to Him that He's the meter of my needs and that I'm maybe feeling this or that in my marriage, but I'm asking Him for breakthrough. I'm not asking or accusing Nathan. I'm not asking Him for breakthrough. I'm asking God for breakthrough. When I just quietly take it to the Lord for Him to deal with, I've seen breakthrough when I've done this. And the book of James clearly talks about this. James so clearly reveals that sometimes, even in the asking, though, we can have selfish motives, right? So it's about relinquishing those too. And what I found is that God actually has something even better that I didn't even think of. 
And when the breakthrough happens, when I relinquish my selfish desires and I say, God, what do you have for me? He always comes through with breakthrough, and it's always more than I even imagined. Anyway, I shared all of that so confidently and passionately with all those women. And lo and behold, fast forward 24 hours, and I was just handed a direct opportunity on this very subject to literally walk out what I had so quickly thrown out to those women as encouragement. And here's the thing, if I'm totally honest with you, I pretty much failed the test, (laughs) at least the first 48 hours of it. I did not have a spirit of humility, at least in my heart, and I did not take it straight to Jesus. I took up the conversation with a friend, right? But thankfully, that friend started conversing with me about it, and she helped me identify very quickly where the enemy was already trying to take ground and lie to me about the situation and even beyond the situation. He doesn't want to just stop with our circumstance. The enemy wants to take ground wherever he can get a foothold to start bleeding lies into all these other areas of our lives. So the fact that I experienced firsthand exactly what this young woman had just described, an insecurity as a woman leader and not knowing my place, what do you think the lies were? They were specific and they were personal and they were widespread into other areas of my life, not just worship leading. The lies sounded like, you are not what's needed here. You are not anointed for this. You don't have a place here. Your time has passed. And the shame starts to rear its ugly head, doesn't it? And then it just started getting crazy town and fears started spilling over about my podcast and my new record. And I'm thinking that some of this maybe sounds familiar to some of you. Maybe not those exact phrases, but they may sound like you are a fish out of water here, which was a lie that my friend heard just this week. And that turned into... Nobody knows you here. You just simply don't fit. It's kind of one of those kick you while you're down thoughts. Well, this friend of mine who I took the conversation to when I should have just taken it to Jesus, really, at least Jesus had her help me see that it's imperative that we sever lies and that we cut ties with lies to the point where we say out loud that we don't agree with these lies because they can become paralyzing to us if we let them. They can prohibit us from living from our truest selves, the beloved. My friend Jody was reading Sarah Haggerty's book, Unseen, and she shot me a picture of the invitation to wonder chapter where it talks about Mary of Bethany pouring out that rich perfume over Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. And it says, and she was becoming her true self as she moved nearer to him. And that's it. It's this relationship that we get to run to and sometimes crawl back to to get nearer to Him, yes. But in doing that, we get back to our truest self, like we've talked about so many times. He meets these deepest God needs that maybe we don't even realize that we've looked to man to fulfill. And I don't mean specifically the male race. I mean just that we've looked to flesh and blood over the divine power of God to fill up the cavern He made in us for Him. And when we do this, the beauty is we emerge who we were always made to be, full and free. It took me about 48 hours really to climb out of what felt like a hole that I willingly jumped down in with the enemy. But as I made my way out, I was able to have joy and gratitude for the storm. Because had I not gotten to face those lies, I wouldn't have gotten to enter the work that God wanted to do to further my healing, to peel back another layer of the onion, to trace lies back to places I didn't even realize or remember that there was a wound It was a good work that He did in me in the storm. And though it was painful, I'm grateful. He also reminded me that it was all His battle, that He would fight for me and that I didn't even need to take that battle up as my own. Yes, I needed to let Him do a healing work in me, but as far as the circumstance, I was to hand it over to Him completely. About seven months ago, I was in Houston, Texas. I was there, if some of you remember, on the Broken and Free Tour with my sweet friends, Ann Boskamp and Rebecca Lyons. And I remember that day it was rainy, but I had rented a car to get out and go see my friend Steve Selig and his wife, Benita. Some of you might remember that Steve passed away not long after that. And so as you can imagine, I was so grateful that I took the time that day while we were in town to get out and go see him. Plus, when you've been on a tour bus, with a group of people for multiple days, even when you dearly love each other, 
you need to get out for some fresh air. (laughs) On a bus, it's just the whole fishbowl thing at its very finest. Everyone sees everything. They see when and what you eat and what you drink. Everyone knows whose shoes and socks are smelling up the bus. Then there's just like the whole bathroom thing, which can only be number one, by the way. You can't go number two on buses. And there have been a few instances where I've had friends get the bathroom door open on them so that everyone in the front living room or what we call the front lounge gets to see what color underpants you have on. And I've also been on few tours where the ever-important don't-go-number-two rule was broken, and it's just awkward because everyone at that point is held suspect. Everyone kind of secretly has their theory on who it was. But anyway, you can't go number two, so if you're traveling during the day and you've got to go, you've got to do the walk of shame up to the driver and ask him, hey, can we stop? And of course, everyone knows the reason why you need to stop. But try this with school-age children. I remember being so bummed to potty train moving forward from bus life and diapers because with a diaper, we could just throw the evidence down this chute that leads to a gigantic trash can under the bus. But with school-age potty train kids, you got to stop the bus, which is why we travel at night at all costs. But traveling with kids on a bus in general is just a bear-all type situation. Your kids are, you know, just bound to annoy the people who are basically stuck with you on the bus. And yes, you might be paying these people to be stuck with you, but sometimes you just want to give them, you know, an extra tip at the end of it all because, you know, they've been in a tight space with your kids and you want to, you know, still have them as your band at the end of the whole deal. I'll never forget a tour we did with Sayla many years ago, which many of you know that my friend, the author Angie Smith, is married to Todd, who's the lead singer for Sayla. And this was a tour that we did for the first time, and I met Angie for the first time. This was, I think, 2004. And my Ellie was about two or so, and so were Angie and Todd's twin girls. And then add our five-year-old Noah to the mix, and that equaled four kids under the age of five as our special house guests for how many ever weeks we were on that tour together. But I'll never forget within the first 10 minutes of being on the bus, Noah managed to lock the bathroom door and shut the door from the outside and locked all of us out of the bathroom for the next several hours. The bus driver had to stop and pick the lock, which took forever. Oh man, I remember I felt so much better when I heard that Matt Redman's young son had broken a toilet on a tour that he was on by putting a bunch of random objects into the toilet. Because, you know, in most buses, the toilet just has this hole down there like an RV toilet with no water in the bowl. And it has this little foot pedal to open and close the mysterious dark hole in the bottom of the bowl. I mean, I guess you got to hand it to him. What kid would not want to put things down the hidey hole in the toilet? When it was officially declared that the toilet was busted, Matt asked his son what he had put in there. And he said in his precious little British accent, Oh, just some paper and some bits I didn't need. Oh, goodness. The stories we could tell, they go on and on. (laughs) And the last thing about this bus rant I'm on, there's just nothing like barreling down the highway on a bus with your mom radar up at night. I mean, it's one thing in the house to worry if everyone's got everything they need or to lay there exhausted and secretly hope and pray that you don't hear that. Mom. But racing down the highway in a gigantic house on wheels is just another level. I remember the point that we had one in in the bottom bunk and one in the back lounge in a pack and play sleeping. Noah Luke was so excited when he got to graduate to a bunk. And so he'd bring out one of those little side rail things that you'd put under a toddler's mattress. And we would basically just wall him in the bunk with this mesh guard rail. And there was just this little hole at the end of the bunk where he could crawl in and out of. But at least it kept him from rolling out. I remember I had to tell my buddy Chris Tomlin about the guardrail trick when he told me that their oldest, Ashlyn, when she was a baby, she first started rolling over. And he was laying there one night in the bus, and he heard baby belly laughter. And he looked out of his bunk, and down on the floor, there was baby Ashlyn just kicking and laughing out loud in the middle of the bus hallway because she had rolled out of the bottom bunk. (laughs) But anyway, we had Noah in a bunk and Ellie in the back lounge in a pack and play for a good season of our lives. And one night, I was having trouble going to sleep because my mom radar, like I said, was on stun, mainly because 
Ellie had recently learned to walk, and I remember I was so worried that she was going to find a way to crawl out of her pack-and-play. As I lay there, I began to notice that the lights were flashing on and off from underneath the door of the back lounge where she was. So I jumped out of my bunk as fast as I could, and I opened the door, and there was 14-month-old Ellie. Mind you, we are going 75 miles an hour down the highway, and there she was in her long sleep onesie sleeper up on top of this table on all fours. It's kind of like this little restaurant booth-looking thing. And she had found some colorful, shiny buttons up on top of that table that were actually the light switches to the room. And the whole room was dark except for those red and green buttons that I guess appeared irresistible to her from her little crib. And she decided to crawl up there and to see what it was all about. And as I opened the door and I saw her there just pushing those little buttons with her tiny little index finger, I was just like, oh, my dear, what on earth are we doing? (laughs) And because of Ellie's quiet sense of creative curiosity that she still has to this day, I knew that she was not going to get over those buttons unless she was not able to see those buttons. So I woke up Nathan and our road manager, and there we all were at 1 a.m. in the morning putting black gaff tape over every light and button that lit up to try to get Ellie to stay in her pack and play and go to sleep. I will say the good work that God did in the storm of raising babies on a bus is that my kids sleep like rocks now. They can literally sleep through me coming in their room, flipping on the light, and having an out loud conversation with someone. So the bus did lull them into learning how to be good sleepers. And they almost prefer a trip still on the bus to some sleepy town somewhere in the Midwest over a trip to Disney World. That is no lie. But needless to say, now that you know a little bit more about the glamorous life of touring, you'll understand that me renting a car and getting out and away for the day really helped me clear my head and my heart. I knew at that point that the stirrings were to be this lullaby record for all of us, but I was still learning where to start with it. I had a few ideas jotted down, but the first official song I wrote for this project is called In the Whisper, and I wrote it in the car that day in Houston. As I drove those familiar roads in the rain, a town that's close to our hearts, because Nathan and I, as I've shared before, used to make Houston our home, I didn't realize it until today, the significance of me writing this song in Houston. And maybe it's not as much of a jaw-dropping realization to others as it is me, but since this podcast is called The Glorious and the Mundane, these are the things that end up meaning a lot to us. We all have these little realizations, if we'll tune into them, where we look back and it dawns on us that God was noticeably intentional about something. But sometimes, like me in this instance, we're just slow to catch on. But driving across town that day in the rain, I began to sing a new song, quietly. And as I tell you these words, think of what this great city would endure just seven months ahead. But also think of the good work that God is always wanting to do in us through any storm that we face or even any fear that we face. My girls were listening to Ben Rector in the car the other day, and I'd forgotten about his song called Fear. As I was listening to the words, it made my heart leap a little bit because it made me think of the spirit in which In the Whisper was written. The chorus of Ben's song says, You chased me down outside of Georgia, and I was sure that I was done. Something in me would not turn around and run. I heard the Lord in California. I remembered who I was. And I learned to dance with the fear that I'd been running from. That song just made me think, am I going to just fear the storms that are coming? Or am I going to take on the posture of fearing with a holy fear and awe? The God who literally shows every lightning bolt where it should go. I believe it's in those choices that we remember who we really are. It's the making of us. Do we not belong to the God who rolls the thunder? That posture of holy fear and awe I've learned can also look like rest. I know for me many times when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I just literally lay there and mentally and physically surrender myself to the God who is holding all things together. Sometimes it's literally the only way that I can drift off. Hebrews 3 talks about the Sabbath rest that's available to us. It says for us to encourage each other that as long as it's called today, let us not harden our hearts if we hear His voice or his song over us. Literally, mind, body, spirit, and soul rest is available to us, even when there's another storm brewing. 
God was declaring his arrest over me that day in the car in Houston, and it started to spill over as I began to sing. Day by day, I'm learning how to stay. In the middle of the storm, I'm learning where to lay my head. And step by step, I'm learning how to rest. In the middle of the noise, I will listen for your still small voice. So let the thunder roll, and I won't be afraid, because you roll the thunder. And let the rain beat hard upon my roof, and I'll dance to its rhythm. And let the mighty wind blow between the oak trees, as I let you steady me, because you're right here in the whisper of my heart. Breath by breath, I'm learning what you said when you told me I could trust, even when the storm is raging on. And song by song, I will sing of your great love while you sing it back to me with the very voice that calmed the sea. So let the thunder roll, and I won't be afraid, because you roll the thunder. And let the rain beat hard upon my roof, and I'll dance to its rhythm. And let the mighty wind blow between the oak trees as I let you steady me, because you're right here in the whisper of my heart. And the bridge says, So say peace be still to every beat of my heart. Say peace be still to every thought in my head. I know your voice, and I will listen and obey every time you call in the night. It's such a mystery to me how God goes before us and even sometimes has us praying and singing things over a storm that hasn't even yet formed. The Lord knew that a literal storm was on its way for the city of Houston as I drove around that day seven months ago, one that would cause all of us, though, to face our own fears of both literal storms and metaphorical storms and consider our faith and how we've walked in and out of those storms over the years and how we will face what's ahead. Where will we ultimately put our trust? This song is for children, yes, who are afraid of real storms, the ones that beat down on our rooftops and send us to the basement bathroom with a mattress over our heads or put us on a boat being rescued from our front door. But this song is also for all of us who fear the kinds of storms that we have to walk through sometimes very quietly and painfully, the kind that cause unrest to happen in our minds the kind where our thoughts just won't get still and our bodies and our hearts tense up at the unknown and we cry out on our beds at night asking him to say, peace, be still over us. One of the elements of this record, Beheld, Lullabies for the Beloved, that I felt compelled to include is that I spoke scripture into these songs and it's layered like an instrument would be in these songs. You can't audibly hear what I'm speaking, but the layer of truth is there like you would hear a violin or a keyboard holding down a chord. And I love the comfort of knowing as children of all ages, including us, that we might lie down to sleep, maybe with earbuds in, listening to these songs, but also knowing that the truth of God's word is also being sung and prayed through each song. And when I sing vocals, and it happened quite a bit with this album, I often just have to stop because the Lord has moved me to tears in praying and sowing prayers into even the vocals. It's become just as important to me as the songwriting and the musicianship on these albums for me to also really pray through and over these words and themes. In this song, In the Whisper, I spoke from Psalm 4.8. It says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. I also spoke out Psalm 107, 28 through 30. It says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and He guided them to their desired haven. This is one of those songs as a songwriter where you just kind of invite in a little bit of whimsy and levity into an actually very heavy theme. I'm not going to try to skirt over the darkness of the storms in our lives. I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, just dance to the rhythm of the rain that's flooding your home and everything's going to be rosy. That's not what I'm saying. What it does make me think of is when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm came upon them and the waves were tossing them about and Jesus was sound asleep on the bottom of the boat. My dear friend Lauren Chandler wrote a beautiful book and now a Bible study called Steadfast Love that I highly recommend to you. It's a study of Psalm 107, which I said earlier, I actually spoke into this song. 
I happen to know because I've known Lauren for a long time that this passage of Scripture is one she's clung to long before a book came to be. Lauren shares her own story of one of life's massive storms that hit her family one Thanksgiving morning several years ago when her husband Matt fell in their front living room because of a massive grand mal seizure. Many of you probably know Matt and Lauren's story that Matt in the days to come was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor, in fact, a very hard cancer to beat. As I've watched God grow Lauren up over the last 15 years, I've marveled at her wisdom beyond her years, her willingness to let the Word of God take root in her, and how she and Matt, who is now cancer-free, have not wasted a moment of the storm of cancer in their lives. In the Bible study, Steadfast Love, there's a portion of it that I turned to in preparation for this podcast called The Lord Over the Storm. And I just love how Lauren gently invites us to study the storm seasons in our lives. Storm seasons that she said can cause us to be paralyzed by fear of the unknown. She points out that the storm the disciples experienced in the boat with Jesus in Mark 4 falls in this sequential order in Scripture. And even though there's a debate on whether the parables actually happened in real time back to back, she points out that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the chapter begins with parables that actually lead us quite beautifully to the storm in the boat. She breaks down Mark 4.1 where Jesus is teaching. It says that a very large crowd formed. And I can identify here with the fact that it says that because a very large crowd formed, Jesus got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the crowd was beside the sea on the land. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't that Jesus was being introverted like me and a little less of a giant crowd fan, but when reading that straight away, I was definitely like, okay. (laughs) Anyway, Jesus begins teaching with a parable. He says at the beginning of Mark 4, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, And the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. The other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, when the disciples got alone with Jesus, they were like, Huh? (laughs) So Jesus begins to help them understand in verses 13 through 20. The sower is sowing the word. He said, The ones along the path where the word is sown— When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. The ones sown on rocky ground, they immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But then when tribulation comes or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Then in the second parable that Jesus teaches in Mark 4, 26-29, that says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. Lauren points out that the last picture of the kingdom in Mark 4, 30 through 34, where it says that the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown, the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Lauren pulls these things all together really beautiful as she says, it seems there's an idea building from the seed sown in different types of soil to the seed that sprouts and grows on its own without man's help, but is harvested by man, to the tiny mustard seed that grows into a plant with large branches. And then she refers to verses like 21 through 25 that seem random about a lamp in a basket. Lauren poses the question though, What if Jesus, through these parables, was even preparing the disciples for what was next? The storm. 
She says, what if he was saying, the storm will reveal, bring to light the seed of God's word that's in you, whether it has found stony ground, rocky soil, thorns, or good, receptive soil. And when the storm reveals the truth, you can be comforted to know that I will cause that seed to grow and spread, and many will come to know me through it. Well, you know how the story goes, Jesus says to the disciples towards the end of chapter 4, let us go to the other side. And then it says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Lately, I've read those sentences several times. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And I've wondered, what was the purpose in Mark saying, just as he was? Many scholars believe that Mark meant that Jesus was literally physically spent. Yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. So just as he was, maybe was conveying there was no preparation to take the journey to the other side, and he was tired. They literally loaded him in the boat, just him. No backpack, no chicken dinner and a picnic basket, no flashlights, extra batteries, bottles of water, first aid kit, no iPhone. No dark chocolate peanut butter cups from Trader Joe's or salt and vinegar chips. I don't know. I'm just listing all the things that I'd be bringing if I was told I was getting on a boat in the evening to go to the other side, especially after I taught all day. No, they loaded him up just as he was. The great I am. The great I be, if you will. Since he's all God, he knew the storm was coming. Provisions for the storm weren't needed. He was the provision. Rescue from the storm wasn't an issue. He was the rescuer. This was Jesus' way of showing them many things that night, but one of them was surely that all you need is me with you in the boat. If you'll remember that quote from J.R. Macduff that I shared a few weeks ago, it is better to weather the storm with Jesus than to sail smooth waters without him. As the storm hits, we read that the disciples were scared for their lives, and they wake Jesus up and basically say, do you even care that we are about to die right now? Mark 4.39 says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him. I love how Lauren wraps up all of this as she says of the disciples, but isn't it us as well? She says, their fear and faith are closely tied. What they feared revealed where they put their faith. When the wind and waves threatened to capsize their boat, they feared for their lives. When Jesus rebuked the wind and calmed the sea, they feared him. And in closing, she says, The storm is God's severe mercy to show us where our hope is placed. My hope for you is that even in just hearing this song today, that you'll have the sweet gift of remembering where your hope truly is anchored, that you'll hear his song over you today saying, peace be still, all you need is me and the boat.
When you get to hear the full record, you'll hear that this song in the whisper is quickly followed by a little family rainstorm of sorts that we created together. We were at the beach one day this summer, and it was pouring rain and thundering as we were waiting indoors for it to hopefully go away. And I went upstairs, and I just started looking out the window, feeling like there was just this little reprise that needed to rise up out of in the whisper, a song to respond with from our mouths, literally right in the middle of the storm. You'll hear Annie Rose, our youngest, sing. Ellie plays the ukulele, and Noah plays the snare drum, and Nathan and I are singing. But the spirit of it is something for us to declare right in the middle of the storm with a little bit of whimsy thrown in to encourage that dance with the fear that we've been running from, to let it steady our rhythm till our faith rises up. Our Patreon partners, you'll get to hear it today on patreon.com slash Knuckles. So enjoy that little treat along with your journal prompts. I wanted to let you know really quick that this record, Be Held, Lullabies for the Beloved, comes out this Friday, September 29th 
and we could not be more excited about it. You can head over right now to iTunes and pre-order the album, and you'll immediately receive three songs to enjoy already. If you're on Spotify, you can head over to our website to pre-save the album on Spotify. That's christineknuckles.com. Also, exclusively on our site, we have the physical copy of the album bundled with some new Beheld merchandise. So that's really fun. So again, check all that out on christyknuckles.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I pray that it was a huge encouragement to you, and I hope you have a glorious rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon.